دوستان سلام عرض میکنم عباس میلانی هستم کنم به انگلیسی فرق بود It is my distinct uh, privilege to welcome two of uh, our dear colleagues from Stanford Law School uh, Professor Alan Weiner and uh, Professor Bailey Ulbricht They uh, have launched a program at the law school that is the focus of our discussion uh, Alan has been familiar with the Iranian cuisine for almost 40 years. He began as a U.S. State Department lawyer and has had many dealings on legal matters. Uh, and uh, Ms. Ulbricht is an old hand at human rights and the rights of the people abused by oppressive regimes. And they're going to tell us a little bit about the project that they have launched at the law school in conjunction with the Iranian Studies Program and how it is relevant to our medium care. Thank you, Alan. Well, Dr. Malani, uh, it's an honor to be with you today and to be with all of you here today. Uh, let me just describe very briefly um, the nature of our project and then ask uh, my colleague Bailey to talk about it a little bit more. So we recently at the law school launched a new program called the Stanford Humanitarian Program, which is interested in humanitarian issues in our national humanitarian law and human rights issues. Our goal was to try to do work that would bring what we know from the university, what we know from research, what we know from scholarship, and uh, through interdisciplinary connections, and to try to bring that, those skills to bear in helping to solve or address real world challenges. And it didn't take long before we were approached by a number of individuals who were in connection with people in Iran or near Iran who were beginning to report and collect information uh, about crimes that are being committed, abuses that are being perpetrated by the uh, Iranian regime in the wake of the latest uh, round of protests. And the question was, could we do something in conjunction with you, in conjunction with the Iranian studies program and your expertise about Iran and your deep connections to people who uh, are knowledgeable about uh, Iran to see about uh, beginning to develop a, a database of uh, uh, evidence about these abuses. And Bailey, you could talk a little bit more about what we're hoping to do with that project. We're still in an early design stage, uh, but perhaps you could talk a little bit more about what we're thinking about. Sure, happy to, Alan. So we're kind of envisioning this as more or less a centralized clearinghouse for potential evidence of human rights abuses occurring currently and recently in Iran. Uh, we're thinking now that that will have three main components. The first one is a collection element where we will uh, we aim to partner with organizations collecting this information already on the ground, as well as you know activists who are directly documenting it, receive the information, and then deploy our team of legal experts to catalog it according to the abuse that it is purporting to show, as well as the element of the particular crime it's purporting to show. And this we think is important because as we start to get a better picture of what information we have, we can go back to people on the ground and say, you know, this connecting evidence is critical if we want to be able to prove this in court. Um, so that sort of cataloging and classification um, we think is unique and uh, uh, could, could serve a real benefit in the future. 
The second component is a long-term storage element. And here we're looking to you know, deploy existing techniques that are already being explored by legal experts um, for long-term storage of digital evidence with an eye towards authentication. So particularly what that looks like is how can we make sure that this digital evidence is safe, is secure, and how can we prove that it is being held under proper chain of custody procedures so that when it comes time for it to be used in a formal human rights investigation, in judicial accountability, or even just to show that it's trustworthy, um, we have that documentation in place and we are using those proper techniques. The third component uh, is a verification component. And um, we understand that it is very unlikely that we will ever reach 100% certainty for the evidence we receive, but um, we hope that we can review the evidence um, that we collect and develop a sort of system where we can say to a certain degree of certainty, okay, this, this was not doctored. This is not a video that's you know a deep fake or something like that. It, it does actually purport and align with other reports on the ground. Um, and this is where our collaboration with the Iranian Studies Program and other actors in this space is going to be so critical um, because that understanding of Iran and those deep connections will be very important when we work through verification. And I'll just wrap up by saying, you know, we are very eager to partner with existing organizations. There's a lot of expertise and work already being done on Iran and particularly on human rights documentation. Um, so uh, we're eager to work with everyone who's out there and, and kind of really serve as more of a centralized location for all of these, um, uh, these potential this potential evidence to come together. Yeah, we've been struck in a very short time. We've talked to some individuals who have said like, oh, I, I know about some groups that are collecting information. And then two weeks later, I had a conversation with another former colleague of mine from the law school who said, you know, I was approached by uh, a person, uh, you know, from the Iranian American community in New York, and she's linked to an organization that is gathering information. And, and these two organizations, as near as we can tell, are not in contact with one another. So we have these decentralized um, and isolated efforts. And, and, and certainly with respect to some of the uh, patterns of uh, crime that we're interested in, you know, it's not only the evidence of the individual crime, but evidence of the pattern of crimes is very, very important. If we wanted to establish, for instance, the crimes against humanity, right, were being perpetrated in Iran, we see uh, it was noteworthy, newsworthy, that the vice president just uh, two weeks ago announced the uh, atrocities that the Russians were committing in, uh, in, in Ukraine had the character of being crimes against humanity. As somebody who's worked on international war crimes and international violations of uh, humanitarian law, you know, I know that that's not a casual phrase. There are formal elements that need to be established. And you know, one of the elements of a, of a crime against humanity is that it is part of a widespread or systematic attack against the civilian population. And so being able to demonstrate the widespread pattern that it's directed against the civilian population, this is the kind of um, legal expertise, um, and analytical expertise that we think that we can bring to help organize and make sense of, in legal terms, the evidence of crimes that's being committed, um, rather than just, not just, but rather than an isolated account of, a, of an activist being tortured in a, in, in a prison, which is, of course, a terrible thing, and it's a crime. 
but when we begin to be able to uh, see the whole tableau of these uh, offenses, it, it can it can have different legal consequences. You know, we have a concept in Persian. It's called mahkam pasat, which is something acceptable to a court. So my sense in our conversation was that you're trying to essentially systematize a process where the evidence these diverse groups are gathering become more mahkam pasat, so they can actually be submitted to a court of law. So how does that work? I mean, I think for uh, American lawyers, we would consider the concept to be one of authentication. But Bailey's written about this, so perhaps uh, you can uh, discuss the, the process of establishing you know, how one authenticates evidence to be used, particularly digital evidence could be used in, 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 in courts, foreign courts or international courts. Sure. Yeah, so I should just say that you know, uh, evidence law is, um, differs greatly depending on what the particular court or jurisdiction is that is reviewing it. Um, but generally speaking, you know, digital evidence is obviously relatively new. Courts are still trying to figure out how to deal with these um, very difficult problems of, you know, how you um, guarantee that a, a photo or a video hasn't been doctored between when it was captured and when it's being presented in court. Um, and there are new techniques that um, legal experts are now bringing to the fore to say like, oh, actually, you know, there are some ways that we can guarantee it. Um, one of them is uh, through a system called, uh, it's not really a system, but through a technique called cryptographic hashing. And that is um, a complicated mathematical procedure that I don't really fully understand, but essentially it works um, uh, when a photo is taken um, and stored, there is a key attached to that photo that essentially locks it. And so whenever someone tries to manipulate it, um, they uh, that will be registered and they will have to have the key in order to access and manipulate it. So this is a way that lawyers can submit a photo and say, you know, we have hashed it using this trusted hash and we have um, uh, a very high likelihood that it has not been tampered with since being received and stored. Um, the other technology that's often used in tandem with cryptographic hashing is something called a distributed ledger, um, which is the technology that underlies blockchain. Obviously, blockchain uh, is used in a lot of different ways, but this particular storage mechanism um, is very difficult to hack and um, even more difficult to manipulate once you hack it. Um, for a lot of different reasons that I don't need to necessarily go into here, but um, though that combination of two things can be used um, to authenticate a piece of digital evidence in a court, um, if it's 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, whatever. Um, so those are two technologies I think we'd be interested in exploring. Um, there are, of course, other ways to um, maintain a, chain of a proper chain of custody for digital evidence. But uh, uh, yeah, those are at least two that we're, we're interested in exploring. And I'll just say two things about that. Number one, we have done some work with some other colleagues and partners um, who have been really at the cutting edge here based at Stanford. It's one of the nice opportunities of um, you know working in an interdisciplinary way. We've had the opportunity to work with some colleagues with an engineering background who have really helped us think about how we um, uh, deal with this new information system environment and map it on to the kinds of ways of establishing reliability and trustworthiness 
that a court will want ready for court. Um, the second clear lesson is this is why you see it's important to have people under the age of 35 working on this project uh, because uh, you know this is a, a new frontier in terms of the the technology and we're way beyond you know introducing photographs. Um, and 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 you know, business records, you know, which is the kind of thing that we used to be anxious about when I was a law student. So I, I think one of the first things we should do in this joint effort between law school and the Iranian Studies program under the rubric of this program is maybe organize a webinar where you and you and whoever else uh, can describe this process in more technical legal uh, language and invite anyone who wants to come. I know you have already contacted some of the human rights activists, and the effort to create this kind of a webinar is in no way intended to uh, say to those who are already working that we don't appreciate what you're doing. We're just trying to bring the common language, I think. Is that? I think, I think it's an excellent idea, and of course one of the things that uh, we, we, I think it's an excellent idea, and we are, again, Making contacts only now with people who we, we some people we know. In fact, you facilitated introductions for us with organizations um, that that are doing this work. And and uh, uh, you know, I think we also know uh, that there are people who are gathering information. I think at great risk to themselves on the ground. Um, uh, you know, public telegram channels have been one of the important sources for the collection of this information. So so whether those individuals are able to take part, I think, is a different question because of the. The, the danger for them. Um, uh, in fact, they're already at risk uh, because if anybody knows that they're part of these telegram channels, even though the, the channels are encrypted and one's access to it, that doesn't stop a security um, official, a member of, uh, of, of the Interior Ministry, from saying, enter your password on this phone, right? It may be encrypted, but uh, it will be very difficult for you if you don't uh, give me the password. But yes, I think an idea like a webinar like that to talk about these standards. Again, standards also for different kinds of evidence. Uh, you, know, you know, evidence that might be reports on a telegram channel, just simply textual material, photographic material, if there's recording. I mean, I think all of these present different kinds of challenges and issues, and, and it would be certainly wonderful for us not only to be um, telling people, but to learn uh, as well about the different kinds of uh, information, uh, the different categories of information that's being collected so that we can begin to think about whether there are particular authentication or evidentiary challenges uh, with different, different categories of digital evidence. So I think the first action item to come out of this panel is that we will certainly organize yeah. as maybe the first major webinar for this joint project. And I think we can invite anyone, not just the human rights activists, but anyone who wants to collect data to come and find what it takes to uh, collect a Mahkamah Passant document right. that can be submitted. I, I, think that's, I think that's right. You know, it's, it, it's interesting. I, I, I'll tell you, a, uh, you know, when I was in my time in The Hague, uh, as the, I was the U.S. agent to the Iran-United States Claims Tribunal, um, I had a chance to work with, uh, uh, with some, some of the families, the so-called dual national families, who are bringing claims there. And, and, and I recently was talking to another Iranian-American. He's originally from Iran, now here, very successful um, venture capitalist. And I was telling him about this project, saying, you know, I thought maybe be interested in what you think about this, given your connections to Iran. And he said, uh, it sounds great, but um, what's the point? Why are you doing this? And I realized 
that what was implicit in that question was the idea that the Iranian regime would not be deterred from perpetrating abuses. Gathering this evidence wouldn't make a difference. And I've been reflecting on, on that. What's the point? And you and I have talked about this some as well. And I think there are some important reasons to do this. Number one, again, as we talked about, being able to analyze the legal character of offenses, crimes that are being committed, and to figure out whether there are gaps in being able to establish what kinds of crimes have been uh, committed could be important. Number two, beginning to think about who's responsible, particularly at the senior level. Um, we might know who the individual perpetrator is, who the, who the person who abused you in a prison, but, but we've done a lot of work you know, with war crimes prosecutions and understanding command responsibility. And if you begin to collect patterns of evidence, it becomes more plausible to establish who's ordering these crimes, who's behind them, who's not preventing these crimes from taking place at a more senior level. So these can serve as a basis for long-term justice and accountability processes. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but eventually, um, uh, either in uh, in, in the international investigative mechanisms, perhaps one day in the international court. Also, there could be prosecutions in domestic courts in other countries, in, in Europe, uh, which exercises universal jurisdiction. We've seen European courts prosecuting uh, Afghanistan defendants, Iraqi defendants, Syrian defendants, Iranian and defendants, and could also be Iranian. They have been. Okay. In, and uh, in Sweden. Right. In Belgium. Right. Two places. So this <laughs> evidence could be helpful there. Um, with these, this kind of data could also be useful for um, victims of a crime to, outside of formal accountability. We've thought about if individuals are trying to flee and seek asylum, uh, could evidence of crimes uh, that, they were, uh, that they were the victims of be helpful in supporting their claims if they're asserting they have a fear of persecution. Um, also more generally, and this is something that I learned with my work in The Hague dealing with the, the War Crimes Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. This kind of information is very powerful in helping to undermine denial and revisionism. I mean, there is a political struggle out there, and there are claims being made that the Iranian government is committing abuses, and they may say these things are not true. And having evidence that's been accumulated and collected according to a very high standard undermines, weakens the ability of the, the revisionists and the denialists. And, and I think I've learned from you, and this is why the collaboration, uh, Dr. Milani, is so helpful. I've learned from you that the Iranian government does care about their perception, how they're viewed outside the West, outside the outside Iran, and what the views of the West are, and knowing that this information is, is being gathered. And so I think, um, you know, my friend's premise that this doesn't matter to the Iranian regime may be too categorical, and that this can perhaps in some cases cause actors in Iran to think about their behavior and perhaps to reduce the risk of abuses in some cases. And finally, I can imagine that it would be very important for the Iranian activists to know that outside in the world, there are people who are watching and there are people who are supporting. Even if we can't do anything at this moment, knowing that you're not alone, I think could be very powerful. I, I think that's an incredibly powerful and important part because the Iranian regime works on the premise that we can do whatever we want inside and no one is coming to your help. Hannah Arendt famously said, the model of a totalitarian society is a prison and the prisoner is at the mercy of the guard. 
for everything, and no one has the right to question. This kind of evidence gathering, contrary to what that gentleman or lady, I don't know who it was, who said it, uh, precisely lets the prisoners in Iran know that you're not at the mercy of this God. Right. The international community is watching. The Iranian diaspora is watching. And any of these guys or ladies, most of them are guys in this misogynist regime, if they ever dare come to Europe, right. somebody might knock at the door and take them uh, to court and have them pay. And eventually, there is an end to this misery. And there is a day of reckoning for these people. There is a day. You know, I know we're running short on time, but I'll tell you, in my time in The Hague, um, when I was the legal counselor at the U.S. Embassy there, I did a lot of work with the Yugoslavia War Crimes Tribunal. When I arrived in 1996, it was a bit of a, a, a new institution, really just getting going. No one knew whether it would be successful. And at some point during my time there, um, the tribunal indicted Slobodan Milosevic, the president of the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. And of course, the tribunal had no power to go in and arrest Milosevic. And, uh, and everybody said, well, nothing will ever come of this. Milosevic isn't going to hand himself over. Um, you know, but one of the things that happened, one of the last things that I did in my time in The Hague was coordinate with the Dutch authorities the arrival of the flights that brought Slobodan Milosevic from Bosnia, where he'd been collected by uh, S4 forces, to The Hague for his rendition to the Yugoslavia War Crimes Tribunal. So uh, there is no statute of limitations on these crimes. And we might think that today we're in power and we could get away with these things. But that isn't necessarily the case forever. And so I always think, Dr. Malani, when I think about this issue of accountability um, against these authoritarian regimes. I'm often reminded of the old, uh, of the old aphorism that the, the ox is slow, but the earth is patient. <laughs> That's a wonderful story. <clears throat> the arc of justice, absolutely. It, it bends. It, it bends. Uh, Baby, you want to say something to uh, close the meeting? Because you're about no, to run out. I, I think Alan did a great job. I, I, I want to just kind of emphasize the point he made that I think, um, you know, this, the idea from this project originated from activists, and we hope that, you know, ultimately, in pursuing this, that we elevate their experiences and in pursuit of justice. And that's really our, our major goal here. Thank you very, very much. And we look forward to, um, you know, collaboration with people at the conference and others. Uh, we need your expertise and we, we need your help and we need your support to, to be able to, 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 to really make this a viable project. And I think the first, as we agreed, uh, our first joint effort will be to organize that webinar and invite everybody who wants to come and bring in all the expertise that uh, you two think we should bring. And hopefully it will be a, the beginning of a, as they say in the movies, a beautiful friendship to end a very bad regime. A very bad, yes. Well, thank, thank you, you again for giving us the opportunity thank to you. share the work that we're doing. Thank you for coming. Thank, thank you, you very much. Thank you for joining us.